Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. Christmas 2018. First of all, I'm going to kind of re- review a little bit of what I shared this morning, but kind of fast forward to kind of set um, you in the context. For Christmas 2018, I gave my wife Kim a gift that was an overnight trip that was going to be taken on February 19th, 2018. I bought two tickets to a Michael Buble concert. And uh, my gift also included a one-night hotel stay because we didn't, it was going to be a late night up in, in D.C. And I added my favorite restaurant gift card to it. We had a favorite restaurant. We actually lived in South Africa before, and um, Nando's is a wonderful restaurant if you ever get a chance. It's Portuguese South African chicken. Incredible. Well, Monday morning, February 18th arrived, and we were really excited about our trip, but we woke up to a a growing threat of snow that was kind of hitting Richmond, Virginia, up to D.C. So over the next few hours, I received a few text messages as we altered our plans, and those few messages turned out to be among the last text messages I would ever receive from my wife, Kim. Because later that day at 12.48 p.m., I received a text message from her best friend, Leanne Fort, um, that said um, three simple words, come home immediately. I was having lunch with a colleague, and we were about to get a cup of coffee to continue our discussion, but I was obviously concerned, and I told him I needed to call Leanne, and Leanne answered the phone, and she was crying. And uh, I was told that Kim had collapsed, And paramedics were at my house. She told me to come home. Well, Scott, my friend, prayed for me and I rushed off. I drove in silence for the next 20 plus minutes. I didn't know what to think and I was really prevented from thinking much at all. I turned into my neighborhood and uh, I saw flashing lights um, from paramedics, a fire truck, and even police cars. I arrived at my home and was immediately escorted to my couch. Leanne sat to my left. And without any delay whatsoever, a police officer or paramedic announced to me, we are sorry to have to inform you that your wife has passed away. Joy can turn to pain in a moment. After some time of crying on Leanne's shoulder, I really have no clue how long it was, I sat up and I exclaimed out loud, is this real? Eventually, I had to make calls to my three grown children. Very difficult to have to pick up a phone and do that. I also had to call Kim's parents. Another horrible call to make. As an aside, Harry and Katrina, her parents, have now lost their two eldest children. Hours later, the first night, I would retreat to my room to try to get some sleep. I laid my head down on the pillow, and these words invaded my mind. You are good. You are good when there's nothing good in me. You are love. You are love on display for all to see. I didn't really sleep that night. Um, I dozed on and off, I think, between 3 and 5 a.m. My eyes opened at 5 a.m., and tears began to flow from my eyes. And these words burst into my mind. In the beginning 
God. And as I lay there, I lifted my hands through tears and said, I trust you, I trust you, I trust you. You see, my pastor, Cliff Jordan, had been preaching through the book of Genesis. And early in January, he had preached a whole message on those four words. In the beginning, God. And God brings that to my mind on morning number one after my loss. I want you to know the messages your pastor preaches, the messages that you hear, come back when you need them. You see, your immediate story, whether it's the loss of a spouse, whether it's a a COVID pandemic, whether it's financial problems, marital issues, health concerns, pain of racism, political confusion, or whatever uninvited interruption you face, I have learned it is a micro story in an incredible macro story. And that story began with, in the beginning, God. God reminded me that no matter how desperate or painful my immediate story was, his macro story was still beautiful because we have good news. You see, it takes discipline, I learned. It takes intentionality to zoom out of your immediate story to get a perspective of God's macro story. And even then, it still doesn't diminish The pain of a crisis moment like that. Because instead of going to a Michael Buble concert on Tuesday with Kim, I had to make plans at the funeral home for Kim. After mindlessly completing some paperwork, my family was led into a room. And I found myself standing in a room full of caskets. And I turned to my daughter And said, Emily, what am I doing here? Reality in a painful micro story slowly begins to just cascade in upon you. The funeral was delayed because we had uh, had to ask for an autopsy. Um, But days later, I was overwhelmed with just the love and support at a visitation that led up to the funeral. Um, Before the visitors came in, I entered the room alone, and I just broke down. And I then went out and got my three children who had all arrived, and we just held each other, and and we cried. And then I brought my daughter-in-law and my son-in-law in to join us, and we just held each other, and we cried in disbelief. And I remember I kept saying, "This this is a stake in the ground. Everything has changed. And I repeated that over and over. And I... I want you to know joy can turn to pain in a moment. In the last service, we looked at Psalm 89. And there's a passage in that psalm. Although it begins with your steadfast love, I will sing your steadfast love. It ends with, Lord, where is your steadfast love? The next day at the funeral, I remember speaking and and I talked about how Kim, my wife, had become a Proverbs 31 woman. Only because he became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, He paid a debt that she owed. He redeemed her. He made her a new creation, a beautiful new creation. His gospel, the, the good news, his gospel, his story made a claim on her life and she believed it. Later in the funeral, Gordon Fort, a friend and a colleague, shared a 
a eulogy and he honored Kim and Cliff Jordan, my pastor, shared a strong gospel message about the resurrection. And the next day, we flew to Atlanta for what turned out to be a second funeral. And then I noticed people began to return to their normal routines. But I began what I came to call my unwanted journey. It was a crisis moment for me. It put me into a new story, a new chapter at least. In the earlier service, I reviewed some of the lessons, and um, I would call them foundational lessons for stories like mine and like many of your stories. You see, when grief or difficulties enter our stories, what we believe is pivotal. It's of pivotal importance. Do we have good news or do we not? You're faced with that. I shared in the earlier service that I had read a book by Matt Smethurst, and I came across this quote. When suffering arrives unbidden in your life and the bottom falls out, you will either have something solid to stand on or not. And I closed the first service by sharing six life-giving lessons that God gave me out of Psalm 89 one morning on a back porch while I was journaling. These six lessons flowed off of the page as I read that morning, and they leapt right into my heart. And I became confident and instantly filled with overflowing, and I was rein had reinforced, reinvigorated faith. And here's the, the, the passage that I will just read briefly, Psalm 89, 33 to 35. I will not remove from him my steadfast love, or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie. And here are the six lessons I want to share with you briefly. Number one, I learned this. God will not remove his steadfast love. No matter what you think, even in pain, especially in pain, I would say, he does not remove his steadfast love. Number two, God will not be false to his faithfulness. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Number three, God will not violate his covenant. The, the macro story that we all know and depend on it is a redemptive story, and it's a story of covenant. He will not violate his covenant. Number four, God will not alter his word. He can be trusted. Number five, God swears by his holiness. We may doubt or we may even stumble, but God swears by his own holiness. And then lastly, six, God will not lie. He is by nature truth. Those are six stories, six lessons that I learned from the macro story, especially in Psalm 89. And they became gifts to me as I walked this journey, this micro story. As Jeff and I talked uh, about today, he asked me to share in the first service and then kind of carry the story on in the second story. And he asked me to share some experiences and some lessons from my journey. And I captured experiences. I captured lessons as I went. 
And I want to review some of those in hopes that by rehearsing some of them, it will help you um, when you inevitably will face loss. Here, let me list a few. Um, one, I faced initially what I called spiritual paralysis for a period of time. Um, Stephen Curtis Chapman, um, they, uh, if you know the story at all, lost a daughter to a, an accident. And he wrote a song, and I want to quote some of it, that kind of captures this spiritual paralysis, paralysis. He wrote, The lightning flashed, the thunder crashed, and suddenly it began to rain, and everybody ran. Then the sky went black as midnight, and you couldn't see, paralyzed by what you just can't understand. Spiritual paralysis, be ready for it. Another, loss distorts reality. Or another way to say it, you kind of have a warped perception. Uh, some weeks after Kim's death, I was in my den one night, and I flashed back. I didn't try to flash back, but these flashbacks would come. And I flashed back to the moment I learned of her death. And in my flashback, I observed that the room looked different in my mind than it looked that night when I'm sitting there. The room in my memory was very elongated. Um, and I realized, I came to realize that shock does that kind of thing to you. And, and here's why I share that lesson. Um, I had repeated counselors, repeated people say to me over the next weeks, don't make any major decisions. And it's because you're in no place to make major decisions. Um, even your spiritual discernment is warped and distorted. So you have to give yourself some time. Another lesson that I would share with you is I submitted myself to the help of counselors. One, I'll just name uh, a colleague, uh, Dr. David Ford. He's a counselor with our mission organization, the International Mission Board. And I sought to spend time with him and with other counselors. My pastor met with me uh, multiple times. A number of counselors, other colleagues would also meet with me and speak into my journey. I've also been and submitted myself to friends and family to have them check on me. I have joked about my children. They seemed to think that I was now their child. <laughs> they began to treat me as if I was theirs. And one of the things they asked me was, Daddy, get outside every day and exercise. And I didn't recognize what was going to happen, but that gave me context. The, the beautiful sky, the, the Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. It gave me perspective. So I learned in this that I need to submit myself to what I would call a tapestry of caretakers. Humbly submit myself to the accountability. Again, a reason for that. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in abundance of counselors, there is safety. Another issue that I had to deal with because of this sudden loss was what I called recurring disbelief. Um, it turns out you have to face loss repeatedly, every day and multiple times a day. You have these deceptive surges of what I would call disbelief. They sneak in when you're not expecting it. I found myself sitting alone at times 
And I would just turn and look at the other end of my couch that was now empty, and I would just shake my head. Other times, I would be with a, a friend, and we would look at each other, and I would just bur burst out and say, I just can't believe it. Or they would say the same thing. Through all of the recurring disbelief, though, I kept forcing myself to look toward Christ. Psalm 38, 8 and 9 says, I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O oh Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. One evening, early in my grief journey, I went through the, just the routine of turning off the lights downstairs to go upstairs to go to bed. And I walked toward the stairs and I was gripped with fear out of nowhere, um, a sense of foreboding. And I was paralyzed at the bottom of the stairs as I held onto the post at the bottom there. It was as if there was this heavy door in front of me that I could not push through. And I just stood there for a moment. I composed myself and began slowly taking steps up the stairs. Again, I felt as if there was this huge, heavy door that I had to push open. And I learned a lesson through this. I found that I was going to be faced with doorways. And I, I called them daunting doorways. They just stood there in your way. You could go around them, which isn't healthy. You could ignore them, which is not healthy. You had to push through them. And I also learned if you refuse to face those doorways, you run the risk of what I then came to call worrisome walls. These walls would build up before you. And if you didn't handle those, they would fall in upon you and crush you. H. Norman Wright, I, I read a lot, and one of the writers I read was H. Norman Wright. He said, everyone has grief, but mourning is a choice. You have to face that yourself. Well, for every step I took to open a door or prevent a wall, I learned if I would do it by I would have courage to do it, it was as if Jesus would join me and help me push through it. He gave me sufficient grace. He gave me every morning mercy, surpassing peace and the comfort to continue. Another lesson I learned uh, about is what C.S. Lewis calls the laziness of grief. Uh, when C.S. Lewis lost his wife, he said, I loathe the slightest effort. Psychologists refer to this symptom or stage as the apathy of grief. And it's an apathetic laziness that just settles in upon you. You just don't care or you don't care much. For me, it showed up as a, a lack of interest, a lack of motivation, uh, fortunately, I'd done enough reading. I knew it was a period. It was a, a phase. And I, if I, I knew I'd be okay. And I knew it was okay to feel this way. Um, my pastor was having coffee me, with me one day. And he asked me, because I took five weeks off work. He asked me how it was being back at work. And I, I said, well, it's mostly okay. But then I added, I kind of have low motivation at times. And I'll never forget. He reached across the table and he tapped my arm and he said, you know that's okay. And I told him, yeah, I know it's okay. It just doesn't feel okay. Um, but it's important to give yourself grace. You can't ignore the apathy, but don't hurry it. You instead have to outlast it. You have to press through it, and you endure it.
probably one of the most helpful illustrations I learned about was that grief resembles amputation. Um, there are sensations called phantom impulses. If, you've, if anyone's ever lost a limb, you hear repeated that, that they, they sense, they can feel that limb. Um, I'll never forget the first time I traveled following Kim's death. I was in a hotel after an evening meeting, and I went to my room. I was about to head back downstairs to go meet the, the team I was with, and I reached for my phone to call Kim. And I'd done that so many times. And you're thinking, I, I, I know she's gone, but it's a, it's a phantom impulse. You reach for your phone. There are many things like this that I read about. You hear a voice that reminds you of your loved one. Mothers have reported uh, after losing babies that they have felt the baby move in their abdomen. Um, there's a chance encounter in a crowded place with someone who looks like your spouse from a, diff, a distance, you take a step and then you realize, no, it's not her. I learned this. Amputations can heal, but you never get your limb back. Let me say that again. Amputations can heal, but you never get your limb back. And likewise, mourners can heal, but they never get their loved one back. These amputations give rise to strange, confusing sensations. But I had to remember, God is not the God of confusion, but a God of peace. In that same book that I mentioned earlier by C.S. Lewis, he wrote, Perhaps the bereaved ought to be isolated in special settlements like lepers. Grief also brings another sense or feeling. Um, in addition to loss and sadness, some ways it brings the feelings of rejection. Um, you just don't seem to fit any longer. Um, you feel like a leper. And I, I realized if C.S. Lewis felt that, felt that, I wasn't going to be immune. And I would experience it too. H. Norman Wright, again quoting him, says, Loneliness brings with it another feeling of not belonging. Um, so another lesson I learned is loss can lead to isolation. And I learned that isolation can be done to you because people are uncomfortable, or you can do it to yourself. You can just go away, and four walls in your room will just begin to slowly cave in on you. But I learned history is replete with the mistakes of those who are in grief. Proverbs 18.1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. So, isolation. Well, the other side of that coin, you actually do need to intentionally, intentionally find a way to seek solitude. They're different. In fact, Julie Arbrough, one of the, the writers I, I read, says, Solitude is aloneness without loneliness. Solitude inspires courage as we adjust to the vicissitudes of grief. And meeting Jesus only comes through solitude. Richard Burr is a, a writer and he wrote, There are some things that God only says in secret. And there are some secrets that are only heard in solitude. S.D. Gordon wrote a book called Quiet Talks on Prayer. And he said, 
one must get alone to find out that he is never alone. I love that. Psalm 25, 16 says, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. So I learned to balance isolation and solitude. Because where isolation breeds loneliness, solitude delivers intimacy. Another lesson, and this is where I'm going to finish today and spend a little more time. Another lesson that I think is uncomfortable for the church today is what I learned about the discipline of lament. Um, I'm, in, I'm indebted to Mark Vrogop who wrote, To cry is human, but to lament is Christian. He wrote a book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. And these lessons helped me on my journey through grief. He explains that lament has four parts. And here's the big part. All are necessary. You can't just do parts of these. You have to do all four of these parts. And let me give you the four parts. Number one, you turn to God. And I'll get into that a little bit more in a moment because it's not so obvious in the time of grief. Number two, and this is uncomfortable, complain to God. Number three, ask of God. And number four, trust God. And I would tell you now in the rear view mirror of my grief journey, I have some really practical meat to put on those four bones. Let me read one of the Psalms of Lament. This psalm has become uh, just an avenue to lament. But I want you to hear this. Psalm 13 goes like this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have proclaimed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You turn to God, you complain to God, you ask of God, you trust in God. So first, let me go through those. First, we turn to God. Mark Brogop wrote, when brokenness becomes your life, lament helps you to turn to God. It lifts your head and turns your tear-filled eyes toward the only hope. Early in my grief, I had family and friends speak into my life. My own father was the first to offer me some important counsel. He cautioned me, as I mentioned this a little earlier, um, that I had counselors suggesting that I not make any major decisions. He advised me after I delved into it, because he'd said it repeatedly over the next week or two, I finally had coffee with him when everything settled down. And I said, Dad, I hear you saying that, but I want to know what you mean. And he said, don't quit your job. Don't sell your house. And he kind of hesitated and he dropped his head and he said, and don't start a new relationship. <laughs> and I said, all right, Dad, I, I, I've told my sons they can hold me accountable. You can hold me accountable too. My own son, 10 days after my wife died, we went back to my house. It was just two, my, my two boys and me. 
And my son said, Dad, can I have a talk with you? 32-year-old son at the time having a talk with his dad. He said, Dad, I want to make sure you have safeguards in place against pornography. My son talking to me? I was amazed. And then later, we had an intern working with us at the church I attend, and he took me out to dinner, and he wanted to make sure I didn't have a problem with abusing alcohol. And later, I learned the language of lament. Again, as Mark, as Mark Rogop says, lament helps you turn to God. And I realized from all these experiences that I was having that we have a lot of choices to where we can turn. We can turn a lot of places. I'd been cautioned by my father, my son, this intern. But in loss, you can turn to all of these. You can turn to new relationship. You can turn to pornography. You can turn to alcohol or a lot of other choices. Or you can turn to God. The first intentional and faith-filled step in lament is to turn to God. I love what Tim Challies, he's a writer, he said after he lost his son to a sudden loss. He stood at the, the graveside of his son looking at the dirt. And he said, though my eyes are fixed on the dirt, my heart is fixed on Christ. So number one, we turn to God. But the second step is we complain to God. Mark Rogop says, complaint is central to lament. But Christians never complain just to complain. Instead, we bring our complaints to the Lord for the purpose of moving us toward Him. Now, i got to be honest. I grew up in the Southeast, uh, evangelical Christian. We highly respect God. And complaining seemed a little uncomfortable to me. Um, seemed almost disrespectful. But I could not deny it's biblical. Uh, Rogop takes you through the Psalms to prove his point. Again, it's biblical. I read Psalm 13. He uses that one. You read throughout the Psalms. David and other writers complained. Even Jesus complained in Matthew 27, 46. But he was quoting Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So I decided to try it, and I complained. It was uncomfortable at first, yes, but I sought to complain respectfully um, and carefully, and something beautiful happened. I'll never forget in one of those episodes, I'm kneeling at the hearth of my fireplace, and I'm just complaining to God, and it was as if Jesus knelt down beside me and spoke something to me. He said, you are right. To complain. This brokenness, this pain in the world was not my design. And then he whispered something else to my heart. He said, but it's worse than you know. Brokenness is so much worse than you could fathom. He wanted me to lift my eyes off of my problems and look at the world's problems. So lament challenged me to take my eyes off of myself and focus them on the world around me. And then it was as if he leaned in a little closer and said, in fact, brokenness in this world is so bad, it cost my son his life. The second part of lament, complaint, liberated me from seeing my own perspective 
of loss. I saw that the whole world is broken and need of reconciliation. It was liberating. So we turn to God, we complain to God, but we have to keep moving to ask of God. At some point following my loss, I realized I had lost my highest earthly treasure, my wife. And I had this distinct realization that I now only wanted what God wanted for my life. I, I wanted to take my hands off of my future. I did not want to pretend I was smart enough to work out my own future. I wasn't clever enough to govern my own life. And so God led me over time to pray four overarching requests. And I incorporated them into asking of God. Here's what I prayed for. I just prayed in keeping with his kingdom. Whatever your kingdom means to my life, I want that. The second, I began praying for his will to be done in my life. I wanted his kingdom to come, and I wanted his will to be done in my life as it was fully accomplished in heaven. I wanted it to be unimpeded. Further, I began to pray that God would orchestrate my steps. I asked that he would keep me walking in his ways. Um, if, if you think about that, think of his statutes, his instructions, his commandments. I wanted those, and not my own wisdom, to guide me. Finally, I had come to bask in the steadfast love of the Lord. And I, I shared this earlier. I spent a lot of time in the earlier service in Psalm 89, which just, and it's repeated throughout the Psalms. It's like the, the mantra of the Psalms is, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And so I prayed that as he brought about his kingdom, his will, and his ways, that he would allow me to continue to enjoy his steadfast love. So the third aspect is to ask of God. And it focused me to pray not selfishly or self-focused, but in agreement with God. And then the final aspect to lament is to trust in God. Brogop goes on to say, lament is prayer and pain that leads to trust. After you turn to God, complain to God, and ask of God, it is appropriate, it is entirely appropriate to say, I trust you. Further, I would say, lament is incomplete if you leave any one of those steps out. You have to get to where you declare your trust. Um, I, I, again, out of Psalm 89, this earlier today, Psalm 89, 33 says, I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. And all throughout my loss, one statement that I would remind myself of and remind others of, if your circumstances ever tell you that he has removed his steadfast love from you, your circumstances are lying to you. You can know that. Your circumstances are lying to you because he will not remove his steadfast love. He will not be false to his faithfulness because he cannot deny himself. You all here at this church talk, repeat the, the phrase, we have good news. We have good news. He will not remove his steadfast love and he will not be false to his faithfulness. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you are a God that we can stand on, a, a firm foundation. Um, 
Father, as in Psalm 117, uh, we praise you, all nations praise you, we extol you, all peoples are to extol you. For great, why do we do that? For great is your steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Father, we praise you. Your steadfast love is great. Your faithfulness endures forever. Our stories, even the hard parts of our stories, are marked by your steadfast love. They're marked by your faithfulness, your covenant, your word, your holiness, and your truth. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and of your faithfulness. Father, today I give you glory because this story can only be um, true if I stand on you and if you are true. And so, Father, I give you glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And I, I pray for these brothers and sisters. Father, inevitably, we all face losses of every kind. And I pray that they too, when the time comes, they will stand, they will stand strong, knowing that you are faithful, that you give your steadfast love. And I thank you for this, praying in your name. Amen. I do have to add a caveat to this very difficult story. After two and a half years of loss, I finally decided that I was ready um, to, step, to step up. Oh, come on. We can do this together. Y'all got about an hour? <laughs> um, and so Amanda never married a colleague that served in the jungle of the Amazon. I served in cities in Africa, and um, I took a risk one day, and I, we won't go into all the details, but I went into her office and asked her if she would spend time with me. And she told me, yeah, you need practice. <laughs> well, you can imagine a, a man who had been married for over 35 years he hadn't asked a woman out on a date in over 35 years, so he did need some practice. It was awkward. But I had to tell her, Amanda, that's not what I'm asking for. I don't need practice. I don't want practice. I may need it, but that's not what I'm asking for. I've, I've, I'm asking you. Y'all, when you go through this, you have people recommend people to you. I even had a few people reach out to me. Hey, can we go get coffee? I'm like, no, I can't do any of that. Um, and and. I, I had been really waiting, praying, and I came to a point where I thought, her, she's the one. And so I asked her out on a date. But let me go back just a little bit, yeah, because God's story doesn't always end yeah. the way you want it to end. Yeah. Uh, my story, I wouldn't be here today if God hadn't been faithful to me uh, all throughout my life. You see, D-Ray said I'd never been married but I was still happy. Amen. God was still faithful. I was 53 years old when, when God gave me to, to marriage. But God used me throughout those 50-something years because I was single. It wasn't a tragedy yeah. that I didn't get married when I was young. It was not a tragedy that I didn't have my own children. 
because I have many children, many spiritual children that I was able to see come to life in Christ and was able to raise in discipleship. And so whether your story ends in something beautiful like our story or if it continues to be difficult, God is still faithful. He's still the same. He still will not remove his steadfast love from us. So whatever season you're in in life, lean into him because he's good. He is, he is good. Thank you, Jeff yeah. and Shannon, for letting yeah. me speak. I, I won't go in. We won't go. It wouldn't bore you, but we won't bore you with the whole story. But I would say a couple of lessons. I submitted myself to counselors, as I've mentioned, and I did it as I was considering this. I even submitted myself to my three children and to had them go along the journey with us. And um, so after seven months of dating, we married March 2022. And we just crossed one year. And, um, I, you know, I have micro stories I talk about. The one of loss was a, it's a, it's a rich story. It's painful but it was rich and now God has turned the page into a new chapter and it's beautiful but I want you to hear what she said and what I would say God is faithful on the mountaintop he's faithful in the valley and that is our story Find out more about First Baptist Church Gulf Breeze at fbcgulfbreeze